He is the author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever, coming out May 4th. We welcome Jake Fisher onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Jake? Doing well, guys. How are you? Doing really good. Thanks for coming on the show, and let's hop right into it. Um, and we just were discussing the, the trade deadline on Matt and I on our previous show. And I just want to get your kind of general thoughts on the, the trade deadline in general. This is kind of the – we're talking to other guests, the weirdest season in NBA history. Um, and with this trade deadline – it's not my favorite time of year, to be honest, but due to the circumstances, I think we saw some interesting trades. Um, what did you make of kind of this year's edition of the NBA trade deadline? Did anything surprise you or shock you? Um, I was a little surprised that Toronto Raptors didn't move off from Kyle Lowry. I actually, I, I, I expected it on Wednesday night. I thought we were not going to see him move, but as Wednesday turned into Thursday, and it really seemed like the Lakers were making a big push to acquire him. I, I did think that the Raptors would cut ties. I mean, he's obviously their franchise icon, but at a certain point, he will he is going to leave in free agency this summer. Whether they still think they could get something for him in return via sign-in trade or not, I thought this was the opportunity to move him. So I was surprised Kyle Lowry didn't get traded. Um, but I also was a bit... You know, I was a bit taken aback by how, how fully the Magic really did tear things down. And I, I think a lot of people were expecting it. A lot of rival executives were hoping they would. Um, but you would hear over and over and over again, but the Magic have done this the last couple of years now. Will they, won't they? And they did. So um, those, those are the two big storylines, I think. Um, Jake, can you kind of take us behind the curtain? Your book revolves around just teams tanking to just stockpile picks and you know win the win the title that way. And you mentioned the Orlando Magic, and it seems like they're doing just that. Can you kind yeah. of take us behind the curtain from a player perspective? Because I get the sense players want to win from entering college, just being in the league, no matter what the circumstances are. They are extremely competitive. From a player standpoint, when teams decide to go this route and decide to tank. What type of a toll does it take on the player's psyche and their just, I guess, love for the game in general? Yeah, you mentioned it's a great point. And the Magic are rebuilding right now. They're tanking after failing to do so correctly, or not correctly, but efficiently, which is from the story that happens in my book. The book takes place pretty much starting from that 2012 trade where Orlando first pulled the rug out from from their contender when they moved Dwight Howard to the Lakers. And it kind of follows the ripple effects from that deal where the Magic weren't good for a while. The Sixers were intentionally bad. You know, they they acquired Andrew Bynum in that move um, and ultimately never played a game for them. And that kind of sparked the process era in Philadelphia. And on the other side of that Dwight trade, like the Lakers, it, did never, it never worked out, right? They were intentionally – um, trying to stockpile all these big-time names, Dwight, Steve Nash, with Kobe Bryant, and they were an inadvertent um, addition to the tanking era of 2012 to 2016 when the Lakers were so bad. Um, well, the book's kind of like a case study to show how difficult it is, um, and it factors in things like you just mentioned, how, how you know players are trying to win games. The Phoenix Suns, after they moved Steve Nash, to the Lakers, you know, they were very much anticipating to be worse in Philadelphia. Ryan McDonough was just as much an analytical-minded, I'm-going-to-be-a-tanking type of executive in Phoenix as Sam Hankey was, but the Suns ended up winning 48 games, right? And they never really got to the bottom of the standings to get that difference-maker type player. They did in Devin Booker, 
Um, but that just goes to show how the draft is a crapshoot. So the Magic are right back in this position, you know, not even 10 years later. Um, it's it's nine years since they traded Dwight, but, I mean, they really haven't emerged past, you know, seven, eight seed in the Eastern Conference. It just goes to show how the path is really tumultuous, and that's, that's, that's really the essence of the book. It's kind of an anecdotal history comparing and contrasting all these different franchises to show the differences and the difficulties that come with this type of uh, team building strategy. Very cool. Um, I wanted to ask kind of the same question, but uh, regarding the coaches, you know, you have mm-hmm. coaches are often the scapegoat. I mean, first and foremost, uh, because of player salaries for one thing, because of lengths of players' contracts. Um, can you give us some insight in terms of like what a coach, like maybe in that Phoenix type scenario, what they're feeling and what they're trying to accomplish? I mean, you hear things like, in Philadelphia during that time, for example, is about yeah. like, talent development and, and things like that. Yes. But that doesn't always save your job. So uh, can you just kind of take us through the mind of what it must be like for a coach in that circumstance? Yeah, it's really difficult. And actually, I've done a, I'm, I'm early into the press tour for this thing. That's the first time someone's asked me that question. It, it, it's, it's complicated. Um, I think, you know, that the book really highlights Phoenix, Philly, Orlando, Boston, LA, all those teams had very different coaching circumstances. Like the Celtics brought in Brad Stevens from college. They gave him a six-year contract. And those, I, from, from players to coaches to the front office in that um, front office members in that franchise, everyone said that six-year deal, it was a message, right? We're sticking with Brad. We're, we're buying into him. We're believing in him. And, you know, when Jay Crowder got traded there, there's a little story in the book about how he was like kind of looking around, are we tanking here? And t-? like he went out to Brad Stevens and said, are we losing games on purpose? Like to sell the front office was just trading, you know, veteran after veteran after veteran, not even, it didn't just um, start with trading KG and Paul Pierce to the Nets. Like, they ended up moving off of Jeff Green. And even like they sent Jordan Crawford to the Golden State Warriors that season. They traded Rajon Rondo. Um, they were trying to move Brandon Bass. So Jay Crowder walked right up to Brad and was like, what are we doing here? And Brad said, no, like, I'm not intentional. I'm not losing games. We just we have the deck stacked against us. Brett Brown would go in every day, like you mentioned, and talk about player development. Um, I think a big key, a lot of players in those situations, they're either auditioning for their next team, right, those veterans, or they're young guys like, you know, Robert Covington or Jay Crowder or even like someone in Phoenix like Channing Fry, who – was a veteran. Um, he's probably been in Phoenix, I think, for about four or five years before that. He was in the Western Conference uh, playoffs, like starting for the Suns against the Spurs in 2010. But like, he was never the guy on a team. He was a he was a supporting player. He was trying to use that opportunity to push himself further. This is a business at the end of the day, and I think coaches tend to maximize individual players um, paths and what their, what their individual goals are and try to frame that in the team concept. Cause if we're not necessarily winning games, well, at least we're getting better in X, Y, and Z. Jake, I want to ask you in terms of the 
I guess what you would call it, the art of tanking. In your research mm-hmm. and going through this book, did you find that teams were actually successful in doing this in just your research? Did, did, this, did it turn out to be that this was a form of, I guess, building a team that was successful, even though it might harm the product for from a fan and just kind of a reputation of the league yeah. standpoint? Um, it's definitely written to kind of let people have their own conclusion, but I think it's pretty straightforward that Philadelphia was the, was the one example, was there the one case study right in this big experiment where they did it year after year after year. And, you know, people make fun of Sam Hankey and Sixers fans. They'll say, oh, well, what about Michael Carter Williams? And what about Nerlens Noel? And what about Jaleel Okafor? That was kind of the point, right? Hankey and his staff in Philadelphia were – pretty honest and saying that we're not going to be perfect and the draft is very unpredictable we need as many opportunities as we can to try to strike gold so yeah they might only hit on two guys but those two guys are ben simmons and joel Embiid, and they're not the best team in the east and you look at the celtics they're kind of struggling this year um a lot of executives around the league and fans are kind of starting to have some shot and fruit towards that franchise right like oh they're always in the mix for trading for somebody they had all these picks forever and what do they have for it? They only have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Like, yeah, that could be one thing. But they also have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. So I think the teams that really were able to secure tanking is all it comes down to at the end of the day is trying to get that next type of superstar player, right? And it started really, I, I, I think, from talking to people, it seemed like that 2014 draft, not only was it billed to be the next, you know, 2003 with LeBron and Carmelo and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, obviously Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker didn't turn out to be that way. Um, but they, it was as much trying to get those next type of guys as much as it was a response to all those guys, LeBron, Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade teaming up in Miami, because you can only get those guys one of three ways. Either through the draft, for agency or trade. The easiest way is through the draft. And then once you have one of those guys, i.e. Dwayne Wade, you can sign other guys through for agency. You can trade for a guy like the Lakers traded for Anthony Davis, you know, all those years later. And it increases your chances to keep that second star. The game the game has become looking look at the Brooklyn Nets right now. The game has become all about just compiling t- talent and star player after star player. The easiest way to do that is not what the Nets did. The Nets got super lucky in terms of building out a program and it required some skill too but the luck factor also they got lucky that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving just wanted to play together and then and then the Nets had the perfect timing to do so the easier route is to do what the Thunder did in 2012 to do what Boston did with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown to do what Philly did and also even Phoenix getting Devin Booker like you get that guy in the most organic seamless way possible and then you start to build around it Jake, I was wondering, uh, you know, you allude a lot to the fans there. And could you, uh, so full disclosure, I was a huge fan of watching the process unfold, but Mm -hmm. I'm also not a diehard 76ers fan. So I could kind of see that go in two ways. You know, you run the guy out of town, which is ultimately what happened for Hinky, or you kind of take this smart, high IQ fan approach that like, I love this process. This is so smart. We're going to get these players, get this talent in. In, in you know, I don't want you to spoil too much or anything, but in most of the fan bases that you looked at for these teams, 
Did you see kind of a, a split like that in the response or what was kind of the response for uh, a good portion of these cases? Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I think that concept is why the book even exists. I think the fact that the strategy was so polarizing. I mean, I'm from Philadelphia. Um, I, I, I talk about it in the, the prologue of the book, like I started my career basically navigating those conversations with older fans who would say, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a travesty. You know, you're punting games. You're not competing. All what about teaching all these losing habits to all these guys versus the younger people? Were, you know, they had time. They were they were more than willing to be patient, and they saw that it, it was kind of like playing, you know, a penny stock game. And if you take these smaller investments and you wait and you're patient, the the, the dividends will um, increase, and and you could really strike gold and really hit the lottery later on. And that's what Philly obviously did. Um, so we, we, it kind of, it's kind of a theme here. It's how Boston's, um, you know, being successful too. And I think um, that fan aspect is also interesting because it's a direct uh, spotlight back onto ownership, and uh, ownership really does drive a huge, a huge um, signal and a huge factor into how these teams actually make their decision making. I mean, it makes sense. They're the guys who cut the checks and support the franchise and do everything. Um, but they care as much about public perception as they do about their bottom line. And sometimes they go hand in hand. Um, so the fact that um, there was a lot of outcry from people in Philadelphia, um, that, that definitely got back to the franchise and to their ownership and, and you know, the leadership on the corporate side. And that played a huge role in ultimately Hinky's downfall, I think. Um, and you know, we see a lot in Sacramento in my book. You know, the, the, it kind of pivots to ca- talk about the Kings with Bivak, Ranadive, and how they were always struggling to build around DeMarcus Cousins. I mean, they, they had three head coaches in five years. Um, and, you know, it just never – and they kept turning over front office executives. Ownership does a lot in order to respond to how fans behave. So I think those two aspects of – team building and of team stories really play a factor into one another. Jake, I want to ask you about the new changes within the league. Adam Silver has suggested even adding a play-in, assuming not a play-in tournament, a mid-season tournament, I apologize. And mm-hmm. now we have, we're living in the age of a play-in tournament. How do you think that's going to affect teams wanting to take overall now that a lot of the kind of yeah. bottom feeder teams, they have a chance to make the playoffs. How do you think that dynamic is going to work into tanking in years to come? In the play-in tournaments already, I think, impact the league. And I think it's for years to come. Like we saw with the trade deadline, there were teams – I mean, teams were basically like the Spider-Man meme for a while pointing at each other for the week or two before the, before the deadline. Like everyone from Chicago um, to like even Orlando, like the Magic, until they pulled the cord and until they really blew this thing up, there were still people in our own office who were thinking, you know, we're the 14th seed in the East. We're only four games out of ten, and if we get healthy, like we can, we can make, some, we can make some noise out here in the playoff competition. So, it's definitely the the play-in tournament um, is going to have ripple effects for years. And I think it will impact the trade deadline moving forward. Being that up until that final buzzer, teams are going to be thinking, can we? Can we not? I mean, the, it, they added two more additional basically playoffs, but teams are not looking at the um, ninth and tenth seed as like a long shot to make it into the into the postseason teams are looking at the ninth and 10th seed and thinking all right all we gotta do is win two games against these seven and eight seeds like they're not that much better than us so 
I think what Adam Silver has done from that to, I mean, it, a, a big a part of the conclusion of the book is um, how they did in, institute a lottery reform, which is um, absolutely dissuaded some teams, I think, from playing this game. But at the end of the day, like you look at the Houston Rockets right now, or look at the Magic, you look at the Detroit Pistons, even the Cleveland Cavaliers, you know, benching Andre Drummond and trading JaVale McGee. And, you know, Kevin Love has hardly played for them over the last couple of years. Um, it's, there's still benefits to doing it. And even though the top three teams only get a 14% chance now, that number one pick versus having a 25% chance back when Hinky was in power and back with, during the Ryan McDonough years in Phoenix and all that, um, we still see teams doing it because you know, a draft like this year, it's considered to be a five-player draft. So as long as you get into that top five, now, think about 2003, right? That's that's the kind of the, the North Star of all this. If you got into the top three or to the, the top five of 2003, you might not have gotten LeBron, but, you know, getting Chris Bosh changed everything for Toronto, right? Getting Dwayne Wade certainly changed everything for Miami, even, you know, Carmelo and Denver. Obviously, he ended up leaving um, earlier than those guys um, and, and forced his way out by, by trade and not going through free agency, but, he made the Nuggets very, very relevant. I don't know if Denver is in, is currently, um, you know, where they are as a franchise right now with Nikola Jokic and having this really good front office regime and a really, really talented coaching staff. I don't know if that tradition of winning would have started without the Nuggets drafting Carmelo Anthony all those years ago. So getting that one guy in basketball in particular, that's, that's why this – Story, I think is important. It's not like as much as the franchise quarterback as everything in the NFL. There's still 22 guys in the field at all times. There's only 10 guys in basketball, right? And there's only five guys for each side. And that one guy, if he is that generational guy, he can change everything for two decades. So that's why I think it's so important. Um, Jake, another question for you. Did you find... I guess resistance from the television networks and most notably I want to bring up TNT just because they are very yeah. vocal about like terrible games. And so yeah. did you happen to discover from a television partner standpoint teams that employ this taking strategy like hey ESPN and TNT they're not cool with this when we you know head into you know April or even you know late March and um we have these marquee games and teams are just tanking and the product just sucks and you have this, the commentators just totally crapping on the product and it's yeah. you know talking about something else uh, completely besides yeah. the games at hand did you discover that at all um it, it's not covered in the book but i mean there is a ton of ownership respect from other teams right like they would say if philly's coming to to town like we can't sell tickets to this game and i think i mean I, i'm sure that was reflected in, in um conversations with the, the media uh, rights agreements that they have. I mean, look at how it's played out in this season, right? Like we only really had the all-star weekend weekend because of TNT's deal and how, how important it was for them, how much money it would create for everybody else. Um, but also it's important to factor in how the big, the new media rights deal that kicked in in 2014, that was signed in 2014, that kicked in 2016, also played a huge factor in this conversation too, because now we see player salaries at an all-time high. And that is totally lubricated all this player movement. Like these guys are making more. We're seeing so many players making $30, $40 million in one year when like, I mean, Kobe wasn't making that in, uh, in his like heyday. Like he, he was at the end of his career, but that was because he was getting these like ultra, you know, percentage of the cap for being such a veteran player. 
Like we're seeing guys right off their rookie deal making thirty million dollars a year. It's it's allowed players to have far more power and ability to move around because they'll just get their check anywhere. And that I think is part of why tanking comes into play because you need to get that guy in your house. You need to get him in your program and build around him and nurture him. And, you know, please, like, with Giannis, please stay with us and, you know, hope that people will join him versus him becoming another one of these guys to take all that newfound power and agency from all these expensive contracts and go to L.A. or go to Miami or go to Brooklyn. So it's um, the media uh, rights deal and the broadcast partners have played a huge factor in this for sure. Jake, you mentioned the um, the lottery changes, the lottery reform, and the play-in tournament being kind of good strategies, positive strategies maybe overall to encourage uh, more teams to stay in it for the rest of the season. Are there any, yes. you know, based on all the research you did and um, and everything you've looked at, are there any other strategies um, that you thought about that could be useful to preventing teams from tanking? And, I mean, should yeah. should that be a thing? Should it be like kind of a, a law, so to speak, a rule that you're not allowed to tank. Yeah, I, I talked to Mike Zarin, the, assist, the assistant general manager for the Boston Celtics for the book. Um, he's been proposing this concept for years called the wheel, where it started as you know a 30-year rotation, which is kind of crazy. And he realized, all right, we need to make it more of a five or six-year plan. And the way it would work is there'd be buckets of lotteries. So either five buckets or six buckets. So depending on how many, either out of six teams or five teams in each. And those buckets would rotate year after year. So one year you'd be in the one to five drawing and the next year you'd be in the six to 10 drawing and so on and so forth. And there'd still be a lottery. It actually might even be crazier, right? Instead of just announcing the order, you know, one through 14, you'd announce the order one through 30. And maybe you could even do it live. Wow. And and pop them all up and that way also you would know years in advance all right this year we're in the one through five bracket and next year we're in the 15 through 20 bracket and the year after that we're in the six through ten bracket and the year after that we're in the 25 to 30 so then your draft strategy doesn't start to be based off of how, how getting a, basically it strips your record being dependent on the draft order right and that mm-hmm. was kind of i, I Forget the direct quote Zarin said, but he basically said whether the Celtics were competing for championships in 2008, 2010, or whether they were tanking like they were in 2013, 14, he's always been a proponent of having a, a method to determine the draft order that's not dependent on record. And I kind of agree. I think that's the only way to do it because if you end up having a tournament or even, you know, right now, there's still, there's a lot of benefit. Like the Pelicans really only got Zion Williamson because they were bad on purpose. They weren't trying to be the worst team overall, but they were very steadily dropped from about, you know, 13 to number eight. And that jumped all the way up to number one after they got a lot. There's higher odds now from like three to nine, even though there's lesser odds from three to one. I'm talking about the inverse standings. Um, and it's now incentivized teams who are not in that play-in tournament, maybe if you are competing for the 10 seed, um, you know, maybe you drop a couple more games because you have, you know, a 9% chance now instead of a 3% chance. And it's it's going to be opening up a lot of room now for a lot of volatile jumps. Um, and we'll see some teams like in 2019, that first year, number one went to 
the Pelicans, um, who were seventh and number two, went to the Grizzlies, who were sixth. They got John Morant. The Grizzlies are set forever now, pretty much. has got that one lucky guy. The Lakers jumped from nine all the way to four, and that number four pick that they used to help trade for Anthony Davis, they wouldn't have gotten in the old lottery rules because there wasn't even a fourth round. There used to only be three. So there's still some repercussions to this that we're going to still see play out here. Hmm. Jake, um, I want to ask you, since this has been such an unusual season, yourself covering the league, what has it been for you in terms of access, watching the games? Um, are you having just a tough time like other journalists is covering the league due to all the restrictions? And once things you know get back to normal and coverage you know gets back to the way it was pre-pandemic, are there things that are in place now that you wish would stay um I guess, in place, any positives, basically, um, in terms of how the media access has changed due to the pandemic? No, there are no positives from this. Um, <laughs> I I do a lot of my work in the locker room, talking to players, talking to coaches, getting real human stories. Like, I haven't even shared any of them in our conversation, but a lot of what I love about the book is that it's not just um, – you know, here's what happened. There are a lot of, like, really interesting little human interest stories from – you know, Brett Brown, he was in San Antonio, you know, to kind of give an inst- a glimpse at how good of a player development type teacher he was. You know, he was teaching another Spurs coach swim lessons in the, in the pool in San Antonio's facility. Or in, um, in Boston, uh, I mean, those players were going to hang out at Kelly Linux's house before Rajon Rondo and Dwight Powell. They were in the car, but when they got you know, text notification from Twitter finding out that they got traded. Those stories I get one-on-one with those players. So this season, um, it's been fortunate that I've been able to um, – I'm in a role bleach report right now where I, I kind of just am rumor-based, and it's been good to get on the phone with executives and coaches that I know, and it's been a, um, a good excuse and reason to stay in touch with people. But I would definitely rather be in person seeing these guys at games, at practice, in the locker room for sure. Are you worried, Jake, that the NBA could just keep restricting access just due to them trying to control the narrative once, you know, things do get back to normal? Or do you think they'll um, eventually see the benefits of getting the stories, like you said, those human interest stories? That's great, yeah. you know, publicity promotion for the league. Where do you think the NBA, how do you think they're going to handle media access when things get back to normal? That's a tough question. I mean, it's it's a sensitive topic for sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm scared. For, I, I would hope that they let us back into the locker room and, and they've told, you know, by everything I've heard by all accounts, they've told us that once things get safe again, they'll let us back in. But yeah, it's a legitimate fear. I mean, the second that your access gets taken, there's no guarantee it comes back. So if anyone who is going to be having those powerful conversations is listening, like, please let us back in because I agree. It is absolutely the product. I know. I mean, I don't really write about basketball. I always, say that i say that most of what i talk about happens in the locker room on the team bus on the team plane when these guys are out to dinner afterwards like there's a whole story in the book about those Phoenix Suns like we were talking about in 2013-14 they were fighting for the playoffs um ended up having back-to-back in LA but with a night off in between and they were telling me how they, you know, they really wanted to go out they wanted LA nightlife and they ended up losing both those games because they did go out and you know that's something that maybe like the league might not want to, people to know that um, teams are getting, you know, they're out till 3 a.m. and they can't, um, 
you know, be as successful the next day. But that, that type of personality, like Marquis Morris comes across as such like a lovable character in that telling, telling of that story in, in the book. And I don't think, like, I, I think building out those people, the, the anecdote I gave is probably a bad example, but um, you get the point, like building out these people's characteristics and their personalities, I, I think draws more interest and, um, with, I mean, there's a reason why um, these media rights still are so important. Without us, I mean, if a tree falls in the woods, right? You know, so it's. Um, I think it's very important, and I would hope that uh, those opportunities come back sooner rather than later. Jake, uh, thank you very much for joining the show. Um, can you please let us know where our viewers and listeners can find you on social media? And again, just remind everybody uh, when the book comes out, and then where um, everybody can go pick it up. Yeah, the book comes out May 4th. You can buy it anywhere books are sold. Um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, bookshop.org if you want to support a local bookstore. Um, my Twitter is at Jake L. Fisher. Um, that's pretty much where I keep around all my stuff. I've been writing for Bleach Report once a week, kind of just breaking down some some rumor-type stuff around the league. And, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're only a couple weeks out from, from the book debut. I'm really excited people to finally get a chance to read it and, and see what's inside um it costs like 20 plus bucks so i definitely tried to load it with i'd say like 90 percent of the material in there is either brand new information i talked to over 300 people for the book so it's either i'd, I'd say like 90 percent brand new or i uncovered a little bit more from situations that we've already kind of heard a little bit about so to hope hopefully it's uh I mean, I know it's worth people's while, but hopefully um, everyone takes an opportunity to take a look. Well, Jake, uh, thank you very much for joining the show. Again, um, Built to Lose, how the NBA's tanking era changed the league forever. Comes down May 4th. Please go pick it up, like Jake said, everywhere where books are stored. Excuse me. Thanks, Jake, for joining the show. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the show. As always, you can get in touch with the podcast through email with hoopsologypod at gmail.com. Also, we are on all social media platforms. Please leave us a review on iTunes and check out our YouTube channel.